Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is David Beer. I'm the Associate Director of Immigration Studies here at the Cato Institute. Uh, thank you all for being here. Thank you for uh, uh, braving the smoky air in order to join us for this discussion about private sponsorship and immigration policy. The idea of private sponsorship in the immigration context is pretty simple. An individual American or group of Americans takes some financial responsibility for someone who's trying to come to the United States. This is already how most of our immigration system works. In the family-based context, it's US citizens sponsoring their relatives to come. In the employment-based context, it's employers sponsoring employees to come. But these systems are highly restrictive and extremely difficult for people who have been displaced from their homes or who face conflict or political turmoil in their home countries. The idea behind what we're calling the private sponsorship revolution in immigration policy is that we expand our current system of sponsorship to allow Americans to sponsor people in these humanitarian contexts. So here's a, a, a brief timeline of uh, private sponsorship. Uh, it starts in October of 2016. You may have missed it, but the State Department actually announced that it was going to create a pr private sponsorship program. Uh, then we have four years of inactivity that we'll skip over until February, <laughs> February of 2021. Uh, when President Biden signed an executive order requiring that the State Department fulfill its promise of creating a private refugee sponsorship program. The next events, uh, surprisingly, came from the Department of Homeland Security, though. Uh, and that uh, event was the creating of the Uniting for Ukraine parole sponsorship program. Uh, this allowed Ukrainians fleeing the Russian invasion to come temporarily to the United States with a temporary status known as parole. After that, uh, the administration, the Department of Homeland Security, expanded or created similar programs for Cubans, uh, for Venezuelans first in October, and then in January for Cubans, Haitians, uh, 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 and Nicaraguans. Um, the same month, in January, the State Department created the Welcome Corps Refugee Sponsorship Program. So finally, uh, the State Department uh, implemented phase one of its uh, refugee sponsorship program. And the first uh, refugees actually arrived last week under the private sponsorship initiative from the State Department. So I'm not going to go through this whole slide, man. But uh, I wanted to just point out some general differences between these two types of sponsorship. Parole sponsorship, Department of Homeland Security, it's a temporary status that potentially, maybe, possibly could be renewable. Uh, the refugee sponsorship under the Welcome Corps, it's the State Department, they receive a permanent status uh, with an eventual path to citizenship. Uh, the most important difference is the scale of these two programs. At the bottom, you can see we have about 35,000 uh, potentially coming under these uh, parole sponsorship programs, uh, where, whereas the State Department's refugee goal uh, of, for sponsorship is just 5,000 uh, for this year. So a huge difference uh, in scale. Uh, this is the number of parole sponsors over time. Uh, Ukraine, 126,000, obviously started much earlier. All the other countries together, about 130,000. You can see now how the uh, distribution has changed. Started out as mainly Ukraine, and, and now Haiti is actually the top uh, country for parole sponsorship. Uh, there are a lot of applications pending, so over a 1 million applications pending from Haiti, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. And this is, you know, this is actually promising. Uh, so we have this huge backlog, but it's a huge opportunity. Uh, this is why we think it can be a revolution 
in immigration policy because this represents really hundreds of thousands of Americans stepping up and being willing to sponsor people to come into the United States. Uh, and if this continues, it truly will be a revolution in immigration policy. So with that context, uh, I want to introduce our great panel uh, who will get into more of the details and issues uh, with these programs. So first, we have Ilya Soman. Uh, he is a professor of law at George Mason University and the B. Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. He's the author of several books, including Free to Move. Next, Kit Tantor is the Vice President of Policy and Practice at Welcome.us. Previously, she led Colorado's Refugee Resettlement Program as State Refugee Coordinator. And finally, Adam Cox, on the end, is the Robert A. Kindler Professor of Law at NYU, and his recent book with Christina Rodriguez is The President and Immigration Law. So first, let's please welcome Ilya Soman. Thank you to David Beer and the Cato Institute for organizing this event, and to all of you for coming, despite the fact that it's the last day of the Supreme Court term, and therefore there's lots of other almost equally important stuff going on in various policy areas. Uh, but this issue actually is extremely important in terms of its scale uh, and the issues involved. In the long run, it may well be actually even more significant than the $430 billion loan forgiveness plan that the Supreme Court struck down today uh, because it involves many hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, so I will very briefly talk about the structure of these programs at the start because David has largely already covered that. Then I'll talk about what I think are the big advantages of these new parole programs for Uniting for Ukraine and also for the four Latin American countries. And then I'll go on to discuss what are some problems uh, with these programs as they exist now and how those problems uh, could be fixed. Uh, so obviously, the first of these programs, Uniting for Ukraine, one arose from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, or rather the expansion of the previous invasion that began in February of last year. And this invasion generated a refugee crisis with some 7 million people fleeing Ukraine after Vladimir Putin's brutal assault. This is the biggest refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. It may be the biggest refugee crisis anywhere in the world since World War II. It depends on how you count. Uh, it may be that the Venezuela refugee crisis is even bigger, depending on which set of numbers you believe. That also involves some 7 million people. Uh, so in April of last year, uh, President Biden announced the Uniting for Ukraine program, uh, which, as David says, you have to have a a U.S. citizen sponsor to provide some financial support. Uh, but if you get that, uh, then the Ukrainian uh, individual can enter the U.S. and stay for two years and also have work authorization. The sponsor does have to fill out a form called Form I-134A, which is quite annoying. I filled it out myself. But by comparison to uh, other U.S. government forms, especially immigration forms, is actually somewhat uh, less bad. And while you do have to commit to providing financial support, uh, for the most part, the actual extent of that support is largely left to the discretion of the sponsor, and there's very little in the way of true, legally enforceable financial requirements there. Uh, as uh, David mentioned, in January of this year, this program was extended to uh, people fleeing four Latin American countries, Cuba, Nicaragua, Haiti, and Venezuela. All four of these countries uh, either have very oppressive regimes or have violence and severe economic crises or some kind of combination of both. I've already mentioned that the government of Venezuela is so awful and their socialist policies are so oppressive that they have generated the biggest refugee crisis in the history of the Western Hemisphere. Uh, and depending on how you count, uh, it may be the biggest in the world right now or possibly even the biggest since World War II. As I mentioned earlier, the estimates of precise numbers of refugees are not that great, so I wouldn't put a lot of stock 
stock in them, uh, but it's a huge, enormous crisis uh, by any uh, measure. And then there is also the Welcome Corps program, which David mentioned. Uh, that one, so far, is of smaller scale. While it does apply to uh, migrants or refugees from all over the world, as opposed to just five countries. Uh, the only people eligible for it will be people who meet the very restrictive legal definition of refugee, uh, which is much narrower than the ordinary language uh, definition of that word. It only applies to people who are uh, fleeing or threatened with certain specified kinds of persecution, such as persecution on the basis of race, uh, religion, and a few other characteristics. Characteristics. Uh, but that one, for those people who are able to enter it, they get permanent residency uh, indefinitely, and they're not just limited to two years. Uh, and moreover, uh, because there's already a statute authorizing permanent residency for refugees, their status does not depend purely on executive discretion. Uh, so what are the advantages of these parole programs? Uh, a big one uh, is its speed and effectiveness. I'm a sponsor in the Uniting for Ukraine program. It took me about two or three hours to fill out the forms, uh, which is not great. Uh, and if you're not a law professor and not used to legal forms, it might be longer and more painful, but it is much better than many other immigration-related forms that the federal government has that you can fill out if you uh, uh, want to sponsor, for instance, somebody for an employment visa. Even more impressively, uh, I actually got a favorable response from USCIS within nine days. Uh, when I did, it was sponsored a second time uh, 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 a few months later, it took about 20 days, but even that is really good by the usual standards of the very sclerotic uh, federal immigration bureaucracy. Uh, and this speed is part of what has enabled over 250,000 people to come to the United States uh, through these sponsorship programs uh, within uh, only about a year's uh, time. Uh, the other, uh, I think, big advantage of these programs is their scale. Uh, I mentioned the 250,000 people. Uh, that is actually about 25 to 30 percent of the total amount of legal immigration that comes into the United States in a given year pre-pandemic and pre-Trump. We've now regained those levels within the last uh, few months as the pandemic has waned, and some of Trump's policies have been quite rightly, in my view, reversed uh, by President Biden. Uh, and the scale could be larger because the CNVH extension with the four Latin American countries has only been in place for a few months. Uh, when fully in place, it can uh, allow the entry of some 360,000 people uh, per year. So if this continues, it will be a very large part of our total amount of legal immigration. Uh, it can rescue hundreds of thousands of people from a war, violence, and poverty. Uh, it benefits them, but it also benefits us because, as I've detailed uh, in my writings, these people can make important economic and social contributions. Uh, but uh, despite the fact that this, these programs are very good in many ways, they do have some significant limitations. The most obvious and probably the most significant is people entering under them are only given residency for two years and work permits for two years. Obviously, when that runs out, there will be a very serious problem. Uh, they will be eligible for deportation. They won't be able to work legally, so at best they'll end up in the black market in the United States, like our current population of undocumented immigrants, that's bad for those migrants. It's also bad for all the rest of us because these people can be much more productive and can contribute more to the society if they're able to work legally in the open than if they instead have to remain, as President Obama once put it, in the shadows. Uh, we want people out of the shadows, not in them, both for their own sake and for the sake of the uh, American economy economy uh, as well. Uh, the second big problem is that all of these people live on what is essentially executive discretion. Uh, this policy was created by the president using his parole authority under the Immigration and Nationalities Act, but uh, obviously uh, if he can create it, he can take it away. That which Caesar giveth, uh, he can take it away, and uh, either Biden or a future president could potentially do that at almost any time, uh, and so that's a, a problem 
as well. Uh, the uh, obvious and clear solution to this is to pass an Adjustment Act, and that is what, in fact, has been done in the past when the parole power was used to allow the entry of Hungarians fleeing the Soviet invasion in 1956, Cubans fleeing Cuban communism, and uh, some other examples as well. Congress can pass a law known in the lingo as an Adjustment Act uh, that gives these people permanent status uh, for both residency and work. There are, in fact, currently before Congress uh, a Ukrainian Adjustment Act and a Venezuelan Adjustment Act, which would largely do this for the uh, entrance from those two countries. There is also an Afghan Adjustment Act, which would do this for Afghan parolees who were accepted into the U.S. after the fall of Afghanistan in 2021. That's not a private sponsorship program. That's just an acceptance of uh, parole without a sponsor, but it's otherwise uh, somewhat similar. Uh, so these acts are before Congress, but it's hard for me to say whether they're likely to pass before the 2024 election or not. We'll have to see. Uh, so I think that's an important issue and should uh, be uh, addressed. Uh, other reforms that can be done, I think the forms can be made simpler and less annoying so that people who are not lawyers, like myself, uh, can deal with them more easily. Uh, also, the 30,000 per month cap for the four Latin American nations should be dropped. Uh, the demand is you know, much greater than that. I think also this system can be extended to cover people fleeing similar war and oppression in other countries. We should not view this as like a burden that the United States takes on. To the contrary, in addition to benefiting the refugees, it also benefits us. They contribute to our society and economy, and they strengthen the U.S. position in the war of ideas uh, against dictators like Vladimir Putin and others. If people are fleeing their regime to come here, that's a very powerful sign of the superiority of ours. It also sends a powerful message that we do not oppose the people of Venezuela or Cuba or other countries. Our opposition is to their governments. This, by the way, is why I have advocated opening up the system to Russian refugees fleeing Vladimir Putin. Uh, it will benefit us on the war of ideas front, and it will impose a drain of potentially valuable manpower uh, and brain power from, uh, uh, from Putin's government. Uh, as well. Finally, although uh, I have participated as a sponsor myself and it's been a rewarding experience, I think we should seriously consider whether a sponsor should actually be required. Ultimately, the real goal here and the way things can and should work and have worked for most of the, uh, those who entered already is not that the sponsor is some kind of permanent sugar daddy or sugar mommy for the sponsoree, but rather that they support themselves. Uh, that's good for them in the long run. They integrate into our economy. Uh, they become wealthier and happier and more successful, and it's good for the society uh, as well uh, because obviously they contribute in all sorts of ways. Uh, so while I think it's great to be a sponsor, and I invite those of you who may be interested to consider it, ultimately, uh, in the ideal world, I think it would not be necessary, uh, though certainly people can, and in some cases should, voluntarily contribute to civil society organizations that help migrants and refugees, particularly those who have been traumatized by war or oppression and therefore face an initial difficult uh, adjustment period. Uh, more can be said, uh, but for now I conclude and I very much look forward to your questions. Thank you. Good morning, it's great to be here um, with all of you guys. My name is Kit Tainter again. I'm the Vice President of Policy and Practice at Welcome.us. Um, and we are a relatively new national initiative built to inspire, mobilize, and empower Americans to participate in welcoming efforts across the nation. Um, we began our work during Operations Allies Welcome, which was on the screen earlier, um, and because we knew that the existing government infrastructure wasn't enough to really welcome our Afghan allies in the ways that we knew they deserved to be welcome. 
You know, we at Welcome really know that there is an incredible capacity for welcome in our country and that our government systems and our existing refugee resettlement infrastructure is not enough. So David mentioned before that the Welcome Corps program is looking at 5,000 refugees this year. We're super excited about that. And then we're also looking at the recently released UNHCR numbers, which show that there's 100 million refugees or internally displaced people in the world. You know, so we know that these things are good, but we also need to do more. You know, Welcome.us does our work in three distinct ways. One is we really focus on bringing in diverse community groups, faith organizations, affinity groups, civic organizations, and the private sector into the work of welcoming. We look to harness their resources, but we also look to harness their members, their constituents, folks that really want to be involved by offering them easy pathways to participate. You know, we're really also invested in creating those pathways and sponsorship is one of those. How do we give everyday Americans who read the news an opportunity to really participate in our immigration system? That's not something that you're normally allowed to do. How do we, how do we make that happen for folks? That could be sponsorship, but we're also invested in how to make sure that folks are engaged in helping with the re-parole for Afghans or things like that that need sort of the power of the American people to drive forward. And then thirdly, and I think this is some of the most important, um, is we share stories. Um, so we share stories of Americans from all walks of life participating in sponsorship to inspire others like you guys in this room to really help us build an enduring capacity in the United States to welcome. You know, over the past 20 or so months since we started, we've really begun to focus in on sponsorship. You know, David mentioned earlier that there is a, a relatively large backlog for the CHNV program for Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans, and you can look at that as a backlog, or like David did, that's 1.5 million Americans that have stood up and said, I want to help. And that's really what we want to focus on. We know for us, you know, sponsorship is a lifeline. Um, a sponsor is the pathway from, you know, from the Donbass region into the United States for safety. It is, it is the actual pathway that allows that to happen through the I-134A form that Ilya discussed. You know, it's a really powerful mechanism. I often reflect, like, you know, if you're thinking about how to make a change in the world and there's so many places that can make change, this is probably one of the most powerful ones I've ever seen, where you can raise your hand, you can spend two hours on the government's website, you can fill out a form, and nine days later, you've really changed the trajectory of somebody's life. Um, we're really excited that the government has decided to put that power in people like you and me and made it possible for us to have somebody else thrive. You know, underneath Operations Allies Welcome um, in August of 2021, there was a small sponsorship program that was piloted, and we were really excited to see that because it showed how sponsorship can complement all the other government pipelines and government systems that came into play. So states, the federal government, refugee resettlement agencies all leaned in to figure out how we welcome our Afghan allies, but we also used the tool of sponsorship. We knew that it was a tool that could be complementary to other systems. And you know, watching that happen, we were overwhelmed with interest from people from all across the nation. And it really sparked you know, to think about what is the power of sponsorship if it wasn't just about uh, Afghans underneath Operations Allies Welcome, what if it was, you know, to our points up here, for more nations and for more people see, uh, fleeing safety. And so that's why we were and we really are excited about the government's programs, you know, Uniting for Ukraine, the process for Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans, and really Welcome Corps, because they offer us as a nation a whole lot. Like one, they offer us the ability to act really quickly when there's a humanitarian challenge. So you imagine the Ukraine war started the end of February, actually my birthday, um, at the end of February, um, and by May we were welcoming folks into the United States. Like this is huge, this is so fast. You know, I have friends and colleagues who fled war in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and they are still in refugee camps five, 10, 15, 20 years later. So the amount of speed that we can respond as a nation through these pathways is really key. You know, we all see, you know, the news about an earthquake in Haiti, or we see the news about Sudan, or we see the news about Ukraine, and we think we want to help now. We don't necessarily want to help in five or 10 years. We're seeing those pictures on our screen now. And what these pathways really allow us to do as a nation is, is respond in an emergency situation to a humanitarian crisis. 
You know, secondly, the thing that it really allows us to do is to create pathways that complement other systems. So, you know, we have a very complex immigration system in the United States. You know, it is not clear um, how you get here, how you find a path to safety. But this is one um, that adds, adds value, if you will, both to our refugee resettlement program um, for humanitarian purposes and to sort of the greater programs that we have to welcome those fleeing, uh, fleeing persecution and violence. You know, they're agile, they're responsive, and most vitally, you know, when they wait 20 years in camps again to resettle, um, these programs are, offer, they prioritize speed. Um, and if you've ever interacted with our immigration system, I don't think saying prioritize speed is something that um, happens very often. So the fact that I get up here and I get to say, you know, our government prioritize speed to get people here really quickly is really, as David mentioned, like in the title of the session today, revolutionary. Um, you know, we have been so inspired by the amount of Americans raising their hands um, to welcome people from all over the world. And so you saw the numbers before, it's about 250,000 people in a little bit more than a year have raised their hands to do this. But I think it's really kind of cool to see the other data that we have at welcome.us as being sort of a central place where Americans can go to learn more about sponsorship and more about these programs. So we did a, a survey with More in Common earlier this year, and it indicated that 50 million people in the United States are interested in sponsorship. 50 million people. Like, so imagine that that 100 million number that I talked about before about UNHCR, people fleeing violence, 50 million people in the United States want to be the answer to that. That's incredible. Like, we've never seen that sort of number to really begin to address some of our global challenges. You know, and Ilya mentioned a lot of reasons why we should, as a nation, begin to address these global challenges. You know, our website receives up to 60,000 visits a day. Our um, guide, our kind of tools and resources, everything from like this is how you do that 134A if you're not a lawyer, um, that sort of stuff, or how to be a sponsor, or how to set up an apartment. You know, those have seen almost a million downloads. It's so incredible to see that when people learn about this program, like many of you, I hope, will go to our website, learn a lot more, and become invested in it. You know, other things that have been really inspiring, I think, to us is the fact that organizations like the Lions Club or Rotary have really leaned in and say, how can our members um, who are already used to acts of service in their communities, how can they get involved? This is awesome. You know, we're bringing in new partners to the work. We're bringing in new institutions to really take up an act of welcoming as a core component of what they do. You know, we've had companies like T-Mobile, Airbnb, and Amazon that have leaned in, both of their capacity as companies, but I think more importantly through the generosity of their employees. You know, 20 or so organizations across the United States have made mobilizing sponsors to be one of their number one key opportunities. Again, because they're hearing from their constituents and their members, they wanna be involved, they didn't know how to be involved before, here's a pathway to get involved, and they want to do this work. You know, I, you know, looking back, um, and David and Ilya kind of talked about this, you know, in 2020, the refugee resettlement system welcomed 11,000 refugees. And every, you know, one of those 11,000 is a life who's, who, who all of a sudden has opportunity in the United States to give back. You know, but that's very small. You know, the number of children born in refugee camps is probably more than that on any given month or any given year. And so the fact that we are able to welcome not only refugees um, through the refugee process, but also parolees through the humanitarian processes really gives me great hope that, you know, like eventually we will have a system that's able to be responsive to the national need. And I think what's really, really cool about the humanitarian programs, if I can use cool um, here at the Cato Institute, um, it is to acknowledge the fact that, you know, we are able to unleash the desire of the American people. Like the government made these pathways available, but it's the Americans, it's people like you and me that have made them successful. And that is really powerful. Like we've opened up the path, we've made the opportunity through our government systems, but it's really folks like the, those in the room and who are watching virtually that have made it successful. You know, sponsors do a lot of things for newcomers. Um, they provide support. It can be the light touch stuff, um, financial support, temporary housing. Um, it can be help with filling out necessary government forms to help people get health insurance. You guys know how complicated that can be. It's especially complicated for a newcomer. But more importantly, sponsors are friends. They teach you things that anybody moving to a new community would need to know. How to ride the metro, where to buy fresh vegetables, you know, how to get kids enrolled in school, all those important things. And we really think that sponsors also help integrate newcomers. So a couple of years ago, Colorado did a five-year longitudinal study that studied refugee integration over time. 
So over five years, we studied what factors contribute most to integration. And integration serves all of us. You know, people who feel included and belonging, belong, like they belong in our communities, are more likely to give back in the ways that really propel our economy forward. And what we found was that, you know, over five years, refugees integrated, right? That was great. But we found that there were two factors that were the leading causes of integration. One was English proficiency. That makes sense, right? If you live in the United States to speak English, helps you integrate quicker. But the one that was parallel or just as important as English language was social bridging. And what that means is you've got a friend outside your own community that can help um, guide you, that can help connect you to their professional networks. And so that's what sponsorship is, right? It's providing that friendship and that guide to a newcomer that really helps them thrive. And so you might not have to do a lot of things, um, you know, legally to make, um, to have the sponsorship um, program work, but there's a lot of contributions that you can give to give somebody else on the right foot. You know, just by being a friend, by being a guide, you can help that person integrate. And when you help somebody integrate, they have higher earnings, they learn English, their kids are happier in schools. All the things that we want, you can get by just by being a sponsor. I have a couple stories that I want to highlight. I'm going to be pretty brief here because I actually want you to go to our website, welcome.us, and watch them for yourself. Um, one is an awesome 25-minute documentary that we just uh, debuted at the Tribeca Film Festival a couple of days ago. It's called One Good Reason, um, and it shows showcases a story about a couple who are living on a farm in rural Wisconsin saw the news about what's happening in Ukraine, thought, I can do one good thing, I can, I can contribute here, and they welcomed a family from Ukraine. Um, the, the family is doing well um, after a long Wisconsin winter, um, kids in school, playing soccer, all the things that you would want your own family to do, this couple in Wisconsin has made possible for these Ukrainians. Um, one of my other stories that I feel like is close to my heart is uh, the story of Laura and Denise. Um, they are a lesbian couple that lives in Las Vegas. They saw the news about what's happening in Venezuela. They saw the same pictures that you guys did about the Darien Gap, and they said, how do I help? Um, they ended up sponsoring another lesbian couple um, who is currently living with them. Their story is beautiful. Um, it's about two people, Denise and Laura, you know, looking around, realizing their relative lived privilege, and then sharing that privilege with two newcomers. And they'll reflect, um, and they do reflect in our videos, that what they have gotten is what Ilya talked about, which is a, a, like a, a, a positive experience for them as well, helping them feel um, like they've got a purpose, if you will, in this world, and that they were able to make a big difference. Um, we've had full communities stand up, so Hartsville, South Carolina, um, Western South Carolina, surrounded by lakes. Um, they have welcomed four Ukrainian families. A group of friends got together um, and decided that they could do it, and collectively they made this possible. You know, Boone, North Carolina is another good example. Places like Grand Junction, Colorado, Tempe, Arizona, Sacramento, you know, Eastern Oregon. There are over 300 or 250,000 rather stories like this that we really want to make sure to celebrate. Um, you know, one of the things that we haven't mentioned yet, but I think is important to mention is, you know, last week, 26 business letters sent a letter to President Biden indicating that they really needed new pools of talent um, to come into our nation to help propel our economy. And so when we're thinking about these folks coming in, yes, it's about the humanitarianism. Yes, it's about giving people opportunity, but opportunity often looks like good work and good work helps us all. So just acknowledging that there's a lot of merit to these programs across the different dynamics and across the different um, pathways for us to think about. You know, I just think, you know, about the, the 100 million folks that are displaced worldwide and the fact that that number keeps growing and it's going to keep on growing. And so we need these revolutions, we need these innovations in our immigration policy today for the current challenges, but we definitely need them for tomorrow in five years and 10 years and 20 years. And by sort of, you know, figuring out that if you ask the American people, do you want to welcome and they say yes, this is so powerful, can really help us prepare for the future. Thank you so much. Afternoon, and thanks for having me as well. Uh, just to remind you, I'm Adam Cox from NYU, and um, you know, Ilya and David and Kit have talked about really two powerful innovations or transformations that are taking place and are wrapped up in these new administration policies, right? One is just a transformation of humanitarian protection, right, with these new opportunities for people who are fleeing persecution or repressive regimes or gang violence to come to the United States. 
And the second innovation is this extension of a kind of sponsorship framework, which as David noted, has deep, deep roots in American immigration policy generally, but hasn't been widely deployed in the humanitarian protection context. So I wanna, I guess, as the you know, person who's written a lot about the history of American immigration policy and, and uh, presidential control over it, just kind of step back and put each of those developments in historical context. Um, so let me start with the expansion of humanitarian protection, which, although it is innovative, uh, this use of the parole power, which Congress gave the president in 1952 to parole people into the country who were otherwise inadmissible, right, the use of that as the kind of backbone of, of humanitarian protection, that's, that's an important development in the Biden administration, but it has deep historical roots. So we wanna be clear, and in a way, this is comforting because we know that many of these ch policies will be subject to legal challenge. Um, ever since Congress gave the president this power, way back in the 1952 Immigration Act, presidents have used it, essentially, to construct our system of refugee protection. Long before Congress passed the Refugee Act, like long before we actually had a system by which people could come to this country to seek asylum or a formal system of refugee resettlement, we had presidents like President Eisenhower in the 1950s, you know, granting 30-some thousand Hungarian students refuge in the United States pursuant to this parole power. Um, later presidential administrations used parole widely to um, allow the entry of hundreds of thousands of migrants fleeing places like Cuba, sometimes places like Haiti. Um, so parole as an authority to provide humanitarian protection has deep historical roots. The Biden administration in a way is reaching back to those roots and deploying this power today to protect you know, folks coming from Afghanistan, from the Ukraine, and also from many places in Latin America. Now, while that's in a way an expansion, uh, David and Neil, you talked about the numbers, right? Uh, 117,000 people, I think, right now, uh, paroled from Ukraine through the Uniting for Ukraine program. 30,000 a month eligible for parole under the newly announced program for four Latin American countries, right? Cuba, Haiti, Venezuela, Nicaragua. Um, that's 360,000 people a year. So the numbers are big. But I guess as one caution, I wanna note that in a way the Biden administration is using at least some of these programs, not as pure expansions of humanitarian protection, but instead as a kind of substitute for pre-existing forms of humanitarian protection. Because even as the administration has opened up these channels where a person who's sitting in Venezuela can seek parole in the United States if they're sponsored by someone here. So that's a new channel for a person to come to the United States. The administration is simultaneously rolling out policies that make it much more difficult for a person who actually arrives at the US-Mexico border and seeks asylum to obtain refugee protection in that context. And the numbers who previously were paroled, who'd arrived at the border seeking asylum, they're pretty similar to the numbers who will be eligible under these new programs. I think, you know, broadly speaking, one way we should see at least the Central and Latin American program, the CHNV program, is it's, a, it's transforming refugee protection by basically saying to folks, we'll provide protection for some, but instead of coming to the border to seek protection, and instead of having us evaluate your asylum applications on a kind of individual basis, um, we're now going to tell you, first, you need to stay at home, or at least don't, don't come to the United States if you want protection, right? Apply from abroad. And second, we're gonna pick countries in advance who will be in a kind of preferred position for, for refugee protection, right, as, as you noted. And so those are really big changes in our refugee policies. Um, and there are obviously some big advantages to them. It helps regularize uh, the process of people coming. Um, you know, it reduces the, the processing crisis that was taking place in some parts of the border where the government simply couldn't process people quickly enough. 
uh, but it comes with challenges as well. So we should see this not as purely an expansion, I think, but as a kind of transformation, almost a new model. And notice, I guess the third thing that's different, it's country specific, it's about receiving protection abroad rather than coming here. And third, maybe most importantly, it doesn't require that people qualify as a refugee as that term is defined under US law in order to receive protection. Um, and that's really important because the Refugee Act of 1980, right, nearly a half century old, is built on a model that imagines the deserving person, right, the person who needs protection, as a person who's, you know, an ideological dissident of a communist regime, essentially. And it's a certain model of who, who is the ideal type of refugee that doesn't match the crises that are taking place, certainly within our hemisphere. And so under our existing asylum laws, many who needed protection just weren't eligible for it. And one of the things the Biden administration has done, you know, maybe one of the biggest transformations, although it hadn't been one we talked about thus far, is essentially to abandon that requirement and permit people who are fleeing things like um, lawlessness and gang violence to receive protection when they were frequently shut out of our system of asylum protection before. Okay, so first thing is on the what's humanitarian protection looking like overall, we, we do have a transformation of the system underway. Now the second piece, the sponsorship piece, um, it is new uh, for the most part in the refugee context. Other countries uh, like Canada have adopted kind of similar programs but uh, a foundational element that distinguished our refugee protection system historically from other parts of American immigration law was that you didn't need a connection to someone in this country to receive protection from us. And that was thought to be you know, a kind of important aspect of it because our other, our other immigration pathways relied on people being connected to folks in the US to get permission to come. You had to find an employer who would sponsor you. You had to have family members already there. And so if you were a person abroad without a prospective employer or without family members in the US, you were out of luck. There were no lawful pathways for you to come except through the system of refugee protection. And so in a way, the, the sponsorship um, requirement in these programs, it creates lots of opportunities, but it is also an additional restriction that didn't previously exist. And what we need to recognize is that will shape who gets to come uh, in part, right? Because it will depend on people developing those sponsorship connections. And which is why it's so important that there are intermediary organizations at this point stepping up to help folks who don't have connections to this country, like be matched. I think that's, that's not a role that's being taken on by the government, but it's gonna be a hugely important role that intermediary organizations um, are gonna play because notice, also, what sponsorship means under our new rules is really two things. You know, um, Kit focused on the integration component. So what happens when a person arrives in the United States? Like how do they get their legs under them? Who provides support and information to them to help them navigate this new circumstance they're in? That's one role that sponsors play. But because of the way the government has structured the sponsorship programs, the second role that they play is they're actually picking the prospective migrants who get to come, right? Because the process starts, as, as Ilya noted, it starts with an application by a person in the U.S. requesting sponsorship for a, a particular person who's abroad. Um, and that means at bottom, you know, the government is effectively kind of delegating that power to pick from a, num, among an enormous pool of folks seeking to come to the United States to pick the much smaller group of people who ultimately will be sponsored for protection. That makes the role that those organizations play incredibly important. And so that's one thing like we have to kind of watch as it develops is what, what role these organizations are gonna play. Okay, so that's the kind of two transformations kind of in historical context, I think. First, the expansion but transformation of humanitarian protection. Second the crucial role that sponsorship is gonna play in actually screening who gets to come, uh, which we should be mindful of. I guess let me just, before we go to questions, close by noting like two ways in which each of these features, I think, might connect to the politics 
of these programs and the possibility of having them become a springboard for larger, more thoroughgoing reform. So I guess I'll say on that front, um, uh, I'm, well, I don't know how sanguine you are. Uh, Ilya proposes lots of expansions. I don't know if he's sanguine they could occur. I'm, I'm not particularly sanguine, I think, in part because of two things. One is, once we recognize that what the Biden administration has done is effectively substitute you know, um, a program that's going to admit 350,000 people from abroad in Latin America for a program that, a program that was effectively permitting that number of people to enter, but just in border processing through the provision of humanitarian parole or other forms of release for people who were in border detention facilities. Um, I, I think we can then see that, you know, one of the pervasive challenges with immigration reform is that administrations are deeply reluctant to, you know, generate truly new forms of entry outside very particular crises. So Ukraine is one of those exceptions, I think. And I, and I think it's exceptional in the sense that it won't necessarily translate to other contexts. And so I, I'd, be, I'd be surprised if what we saw was the expansion of this kind of avenue of entry to many other countries. Um, the second thing I think that makes it unlikely uh, is that um, you know, the way the administration has constructed the programs, they're closely connected to enforcement efforts. In fact, they're often paired with them. And that means that they work in the context of immigration to the United States from this hemisphere, where you have lots of folks arriving at the US-Mexico border, but they're less translatable to other contexts abroad where they can't be similarly paired with enforcement efforts. Um, now that's that, I guess I'll just end on a note of hope. I do think the one other aspect of these programs that maybe does create political space in Congress or elsewhere for reform that we haven't been able to get in a long time is that one effect of the administration's kind of substitution for processing people seeking protection at the border for this new system where people who want protection need to be processed essentially abroad is that it reduces the kind of salience of the, the processing challenges that have taken place at the border. You're, you're less likely to have overcrowded facilities, um, you know, where people are stuck in, in terrible conditions and detention centers for prolonged periods of time. Those kinds, the images from those facilities, the challenges that people face when they actually do present themselves at the border have been deeply politically polarizing, both for, both for the left and the right. And I think that that's been part of the obstacle to immigration reform efforts you know, on the Hill for so long. And one thing that these policies have the potential promise to do is like turn down the temperature on that. And I think one kind of encouraging you know, recent anecdote is in the run up to the expiration of the emergency authorities that had blocked access to asylum at the southern border, those, those Trump administration policies, there was a slew of coverage about how the government expected you know, a massive increase in the arrival of people at the U.S.-Mexico border, and that hasn't happened. And I think part of the reason that hasn't happened is because of the existence of these programs, and that might just create a little teeny political space for more change along these lines. So I'll stop there so that we can all take questions. All right, we will be taking questions both online and uh, from our in-person audience. Online audience may join the conversation and submit questions directly on the event page or on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter using the Cato Immigration hashtag. Uh, if we call on you, please speak right into the mic, uh, make your comment into a question, and um, please give us your name so uh, we know who you are. Hi there, my name is Todd Wiggins. Um, my quick question is, what are some of the security topics that might come up for the application that might um, affect whether a person is considered eligible? Does anyone want to uh, address that? Yeah, so USCIS 
in principle, uh, or do I need the mic? Uh, you have a mic. Uh, so USCS in principle is supposed to look at that uh, because they screen relatively quickly. Uh, they probably, you know, obviously don't do uh, so-called extreme vetting or anything of that sort. But I would also say that long experience with refugees and other migrants suggests that the security risks are actually very low. Uh, the rate of both violent crime, espionage, and other problems is actually lower than it is with native-born Americans. Uh, so therefore, it seemed to me that a pretty cursory screening uh, is sufficient, uh, and it's much better to take a small risk on that front than to keep people waiting uh, for years on end, which is bad for those people, but also bad for the U.S. economy, which can benefit from their contributions. And by the way, I'd also note uh, bad for uh, the issue of tr reducing pressure on the border, uh, because from these uh, four Latin American countries, there's already been a massive reduction uh, in migrants from those countries coming to the border and potentially causing clogging the like instead if they can enter by other ways. Uh, that's better for a variety of reasons, including security, and also, as Adam said, lowering the temperature on this issue in that much opposition to immigration comes from the perception of disorder at the border, which ironically is itself the consequence of immigration restrictions. Uh, but if we're allowed to uh, let people enter by ways where they don't even have to come to the border, or if they do come to it, uh, they can quickly go on to the interior. Uh, that makes things much easier. I actually have a, I actually have a slide um, showing the illegal border crossings. Do I have to point it? There we go. So this is the number of illegal border crossings uh, from the, the four Latin American countries uh, that have parole sponsorship. And you can see uh, pretty substantial declines. Uh, June numbers are, are provisional, but uh, basically, the, the, the big picture here is it's really brought down the number uh, of people crossing illegally uh, as a result of these uh, opportunities to come legally. Um, and uh, I'm going to do a quick uh, online question. Um, why is the State Department uh, so much slower than uh, the Department of Homeland Security? And is there anything that can be done to speed up that process so people are coming in with permanent residence? as opposed to um, just a temporary parole status. Uh, maybe Kit, do, do you have any insight on that? Yeah, I can start. I mean, I think, um, you know, the, the process is an international process. There's lots of different institutions. There's lots of different bureaucracies, if you will, involved. Um, but the Biden administration has made a pledge to begin to speed up that process. Um, you know, many friends and colleagues waited years and even decades to come here. But we are, they are, the Biden administration is actively trying to reduce um, that timeline to be a, a mere matter of months versus the years and years. But, of course, it all depends on capacity. Great. Uh, right here. Hi, thank you so much for the presentation today. My name is Eden. I'm from the Ethiopian Community Development Council, um, and I'm one of the co-sponsorship um, uh, employees. <laughs> and um, I just want to say that this is a great program that was ever invented. Um, I think there's a lot more people that need our help, but I'm also sadly to say, have not heard any African country mentioned in these presentations, as well as in these programs. And the heartache for me is actually receiving um, refugees sending emails because they heard about the private sponsorship. And we don't have a way to direct them in, into any institution, even with Welcome Corps, when we do those trainings. We do ask, but they also don't have a way forward. So if we can tap on that and and also just, I don't know if there are any future sponsorship for this African refugees that we are serving. I'm gonna give you an example. The Ethiopian war has been there for three years since 2020. There has been a genocide in the northern aspect of that country and it has affected the entire country. And they flee to Sudan and Sudan is in shambles right now. Where do they go from here? Um, if you can address that, I would appreciate it. Thank you. So it, it's a good question, if, if I can start, is that okay? Go ahead. Uh, as I've noted in my presentation, I would like to see the expansion of this model 
all to people fleeing similar horrible circumstances all over the world, Africa definitely included. I do think many or at least some African refugees uh, are eligible for Welcome Corps, those who fall within the legal definition of refugee. The genocide that you mentioned, people threatened by genocide, do fall within the legal definition of refugee, in fact, because the, by definition, genocide is when people are targeted based on their race or ethnicity or similar characteristic. Uh, however, there's obviously a case that in Africa and elsewhere, there are people fleeing horrible conditions that do not fit the legal definition of refugee. I think the solution to that uh, is either to expand uh, systems of pro and private sponsorship that do not require people to fit that legal definition. I and other scholars have also long advocated expanding the legal definition of refugee itself. There's a variety of ways to do that. I've, I've written some about some of them, but obviously it's much easier for an academic to talk about them than to actually get these things through Congress. And I share your frustration over that. Uh, I wish I had influence over Congress but sadly, my influence is extremely limited uh, at best. David, can I add quickly? Course, I, mean, I think one thing that we mentioned at the top was the Welcome Corps Phase 1, um, which is basically um, allowing a matching program to where you apply for the Welcome Corps program and you are matched with a refugee um, seeking safety. You might know that the two first arrivals um, were, were from the African continent, although not from Ethiopia. Um, but phase two of the Welcome Corps is going to offer up a bunch of different opportunities to be able to lean into some of the connections that the diaspora communities have to people stuck in situations like yours. So I think that folks really understand um, that this is a constraint of, of the current programs, and we're hoping that what we can do by involving more Americans in this to include the diaspora community is opening and unleashing that power to welcome even more. Great. Thank you. Uh, Rebecca Santana from the Associated Press. I'm curious with these different programs, what are your concerns, um, especially obviously the humanitarian parole long term? I mean, these are people coming in for two years for the most part, and they have no long term future towards green cards, towards long term stability. Can you talk about that a little bit? So I, I spoke about that in my presentation. Let me expand further. I think the ultimate solution to this is to pass an adjustment act of the sort that has already been passed for parolees during the Cold War era and other times, Cuban parolees, uh, Hungarian ones and others. In addition, the president does have the power to extend the parole using executive authority. He has actually done that already just a few weeks ago with respect to Afghan parolees, uh, and uh, I suspect this is under consideration for some of the others, but there is this caveat that it works uh, purely on executive discretion. He might extend for another two or three or four years, but a future president could reverse that or just simply let the time run out. Uh, what Caesar giveth, uh, Caesar can take it away. So the ultimate solution to that is for Congress to pass legislation, as it is now actually considering doing and has done in the past. But as Adam mentioned, the politics of this particularly in a soon-to-be election year, uh, are not as wonderful as they could be. So while uh, I hope that such adjustment acts will pass, and those of you who have political influence, I hope you will exercise that influence to push them through, uh, but it's not going to be an easy task. The Afghan Adjustment Act uh, has been bottled up in the Senate for some time. Uh, the Venezuelan and Ukrainian ones were just recently introduced. Uh, we will have to see uh, what their fate is. Let me just add two, two quick points. So one is, and this distinguishes uh, people who have received parole from, say, um, recipients of relief under DACA. Uh, parole actually makes a person eligible for something known as adjustment of status under immigration law, which is a fancy way of saying, if once you're in the country, you find an employer who's willing to sponsor you because of your job, or you fall in love and marry an American citizen, you can get a green card. So for people who come pursuant to these programs, some of them will be able to find their way to permanent residency and a more secure status without any changes to the programs at all. But many won't, and so Ilya's right that, you know, congressional action historically has been the way 
that we've extended permanent residency. Um, the Hungarian example that I mentioned from the 1950s, Congress passed an Adjustment Act and gave permanent status to those folks. Now, the current environment looks terrible. You know, it's, you know, from the outside, I don't live in DC. It's like, how can we not pass the DREAM Act? How can we not get regularization for DACA recipients who've, who've had that status for a decade? Intriguingly, there is one, again, difference uh, between, say, the politics around DACA and the politics of these programs, which is that by virtue of running these programs from abroad, the folks who receive this relief and come as parolees, they're lawful entrants to this country. So at least if we're being factually accurate, they can't be characterized as illegal border crossers or unlawful residents or anything like that. And I, I do wonder whether that will uh, you know, sort of help the politics around the passage of uh, statutes to regularize their status. Just to Yes, they can also apply for asylum. Two small caveats tonight. One is to apply to asylum, you do have to meet the legal definition of refugee, which probably a high percentage of them do not. Uh, secondly, uh, with each of these adjustment acts that I mentioned, there is at least some bipartisan support for them. They do have Republican co-sponsors as well as Democratic ones, but obviously there are many people in the Republican Party uh, who are opposed to legal as well as illegal immigration and therefore would be you know, would, would be white who to oppose this. So I think it remains to be seen whether these adjustment acts can pass or not. Uh, there's also one other pathway by which parolees can stay in the U.S. potentially. That is if they have children who are born in the U.S., uh, you know, then uh, you can be potentially apply to be. It's a long wait. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll come back in 21 years. <laughs> uh, talk about that. Uh, all right, I really appreciate our panelists' time. Thank you so much. Um, that, that concludes our session. We have lunch out there. You can bring it back here and, and uh, join us for lunch. Thank you so much.